Chilean tarantulas, like my friend Chili here, yeah. throw poison quills at their enemies with deadly accuracy. I never miss. You're all right. Is everything okay? Honey, I shrunk the audience. Here we go. Here we go. Through the universe of energy. And now, as long as you're all standing, we have a wonderful magic trick for you. Yeah, a wunderbar trick. Everybody, face the door. And the trick is, we're gonna make you all Disappear! W, D, w Radio, your information station. Hello, my friend, and welcome to the WDW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I am your host, Lou Mangiello, and this is show number 661, and together we're going to celebrate the magic of the Disney parks, movies, and more here on the podcast my weekly live video, community, blog, and more. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and find everything else at www.radio.com. So former creative with Walt Disney Imagineering, Tom K. Morris joins me this week to discuss his remarkable journey to and with Walt Disney Imagineering. Tom shares details of how and why he visited Walt Disney World on opening day in 1971 by himself at the age of 12, and what Disney did to make that day even more special. We also talk about Tom's work at Disneyland and at Imagineering, including working with Claude Coates, his work on World of Motion, working with Tony Baxter on Splash Mountain, and much more. I'll then have our Disney trivia question of the week and more updates at the end of the show. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WW Radio Show. While we all know and I think understand that it does, in fact, take people to make the dreams a reality, there are sometimes so many names behind the scenes who design and create the magic we know, love, and appreciate. And today, I'm joined by someone who very appropriately, and I think in many ways, fits the bill of being both a dreamer and a doer, and someone who never let anything get in his way of what he wanted and literally and figuratively where he wanted to go. It's a tease for what is to come. And he is somebody filled with sparks of imagination, including some sparks of imagination that he brought to literal life. He is former Imagineer Tom K. Morris. And Tom, I want to welcome you to the show. Thank you very much. It's great being here. I have um, I have been following you and your work for some time on social and and I guess unknowingly in the parks for many, many years. Uh, and we had a chance to meet and chat a little bit during Walt Disney World's very hot, by the way, 50th anniversary. And I'll share a link to uh, a video of that interview in the show notes and, and in the group. So I'm really excited to spend some time chatting with you today, uh, especially because I love your story 
And that's where I want to start. I'm a sucker for origin stories, and yours <laughs> is fascinating to me on a number of levels. But but take me back. Take us back to young Tom Morris, um, the kid who is a Disney fan, and even before you stepped foot into a Disney park, were a, a fan of what you saw on screen with animation. I think that's true. I think... Um... Well, I think my earliest Disney memories, to be honest, are Disneyland. I mean, I can remember a trip that we took probably in 1962, and I was just, you know, <laughs> just on this earth, two or three years old. And um, and I remember, you know, parts of that uh, trip very vividly. And apparently we would go every year, every 4th of July. Um, so... You know, my memories of that go way back. And and I guess um, besides the park, it would probably be the reruns of the Mickey Mouse Club that would be on TV. And if we were really lucky, we would, you know, get to see um, an animated feature in the theater or a Disney film in the theater. And uh, but the first one that I really remember well is Mary Poppins. And that had a big effect on me. That was, you know, such a magical film with, you know, just everything going for it. You know, I wanted to be in that film. I wanted to go to the places that they went, you know, I wanted to go to London and, um, it, and it kind of sparked an early interest in, in travel and in England and London. And, um, so those are kind of my, you know, early memories. Uh, but they kind of ramp up when my dad gets a summer job at Disneyland he was a high school teacher and many, many high school teachers um, in the area, in the local area of Disneyland would, um, would get a, a seasonal job at Disneyland and work there when, you know, school was out of session. And so um, in the spring of 1967, my dad um, started as a ride operator at Disneyland on the Pirates of the Caribbean, which had just opened. And uh, so my dad being an art teacher and also um, taught uh, uh, theater craft at the high school uh, would often um, tell me about some of the tricks. I hadn't even gone on the ride yet, but he would tell me like, you know, some of the things that uh, were accomplished, you know, from a theatrical standpoint. And I thought that was very interesting. And when I finally went on it, I was blown away. Just really it like changed. I want before that I wanted to be an animator. But, um, or, or at least my interest in animation was developing at that time, probably parallel uh, with suddenly, you know, my dad told me about this organization called WED and what they did. And I think I sent them a, um, I think I sent them a, a, a suggestion letter uh, at the end of 1967. I think um, we had gone to see Jungle Book and there was a film that was, with it called Charlie the Lonesome Cougar. And uh, there was a flume, a log flume in it. And I thought I had the brilliant original, never before thought of idea of a log flume ride. And I remember sending in that, uh, my suggestion, my very detailed suggestion about how you would meet Paul Bunyan and all of this. And, uh, but this was before any log ride was ever announced at Knott's Berry Farm. So I really did think it was, you know, a new idea. Um, but there had been, I guess they had, there was already a couple back East and I never got a reply. <laughs> 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 uh, 
it might be in there. It might be in some file somewhere. Yeah, eventually got a log flume ride in Disneyland. So that's true. You know, a bit of credit for it. Sometimes I don't think of the uh, coincidences like that. You know, that how things circle back. I probably it probably didn't even occur to me at the time that I was doing um, Splash Mountain that you know that I had done that. So, is there some seed that is planted? in you very early on, like this is what I think I want to do. I'm so fascinated by not just what I see on stage, but what is probably going on backstage that this is what I want to eventually create. Yeah. um, You know, I had kind of four parallel interests, which were um, animation, film in general, um, uh, architecture and imagineering, if you will. But Imagineering was kind of low on the totem pole because um, how many Imagineers <laughs> are there you know, in the world? And my impression was there were a couple hundred, which was probably correct at that time. And, um, and you know, it would be very, very difficult. And who knows, Walt Disney just died. And so maybe you know, it's something that's not gonna be around much longer. So um, I, th- you know, I think in those formative, early formative years, say grade school, um, I think it was focused on animation at the time. And uh, I didn't want to be an animator. I wanted to be a uh, background artist, uh, layout artist, or or somehow be the creator, the director, the writer of the production and not necessarily the animator. <laughs> so I, I, I'm... I'm anxious to get to what I think is the most fascinating part really of not just your story, but really what is still your childhood. Because before you even maybe say, this is where I I want to go and work, you said, this is where I want to go and play. Because in October of 1971, Walt Disney World is opening. If I'm doing the math correctly, you're about 12 years old and... Nothing was going to get in the way of little Tom Morris going to Walt Disney World. <laughs> no. <that> story. <laughs> you know, uh, it's a story I kind of put out of my head for, you know, 30 or 40 years. Um, and now I try to reconstruct, you know, parts of it are very vivid. And then other parts are like, well, how did, you know, I get from B to C? <laughs> um, I can tell you what sparked the notion was that Um, I had recently come across some old souvenir guides of Disneyland, and I was interested in, you know, Disneyland history uh, and and Disneyland in general. And um, but I had come come across uh, some of these old guidebooks that went back into ancient time. This would be like 15 years earlier, right? You know, in the 50s and the 60s. And it was like, this is a different Disneyland in some places. You know, Tomorrowland, look how funky that is. Look how you can see the uh, telephone poles and the freeway, you know, from inside the park. And look at these, you know, kind of funny idea, you know, the Frito boy and all of these things that were just um, kind of surprising to me. And, uh, And I just like, God, I'd love to go back in time, you know, to old Disneyland. And I had a, a handful of other friends that were also very interested in Disneyland, not quite as fanatically as I was, but they were they were pretty interested in it too. So we, um, oh, and I should kind of back up a little bit. Walt Disney World in Southern California was kind of in the same rumor mill as the Haunted Mansion was. Like, is it? Are they really going to ever open this thing? 
they're you know having problems, so they've decided not to open it. And those were the kind of rumor, secondhand rumors, because there were a lot of Disney, uh, high-profile Disney people who lived in the area, you know, uh, where I grew up in Orange County. And that could be the the um, origin of a lot of these rumors, you know, through via the the game of telephone, a bad translation from person to person. Early Twitter, uh, right? <laughs> yeah, i.e. Twitter. Um, you know, so that's how the Haunted Mansion rumors started. And, you know, there were some other rumors, but one of the rumors was they're not doing Disney World. They're not going to do it. You know, Walt died and it was just, you know, too big of an idea. And so I kind of went, you know, according to that, notion for quite a while until it was you know the the news that it was actually opening in 1971 October 71 finally came around which probably wasn't until late 1970 or early 1971 and the um the actual kind of confirmation of that came when that look magazine came out with Mickey Mouse on the cover which was you know I think in the spring of 71 and it actually had photos um, of parts of the park that were already finished, like Main Street and the Haunted Mansion. And I just got this wild idea, like, well, why not go, you know, if, you, if I can never go back in time to Disneyland on opening day, I can, there's one more chance, <laughs> one more chance. And, um, and so my other friends thought that was a good idea too. So we were all kind of planning on going out there you know, for a couple of days and, and, you know, we could all spring together and get a room at, because we had a brochure. I think, you know, one of us had written in. And so we got a pamphlet that said, you know, $23 for the contemporary hotel or 25, if you want a, a tower room. And um, it's like, yeah, let's spring for it and get a tower room and all this. And I wrote a letter to them. I still have the reply somewhere. Um, basically, you know, uh, requesting a room for that weekend. And they said, uh, well, we'd like to accommodate you, but you have to be with an adult, <laughs> which makes sense. And it, it's maybe a good thing I didn't sign up for that room at the Contemporary, because as you probably know, the Contemporary wasn't ready on October 1st. <laughs> uh, so eventually my other friends kind of backed out of it as they realized kind of how far-fetched the scheme was and my um neither of my parents were interested in doing this it was a school day uh a friday i think you know and my dad didn't want to uh take off you know from work and do that and but i had been saving my money on my paper route you know and i had saved up enough for a round trip ticket now, how and when the ticket was bought is something that is has escaped my memory. But I do remember, like, just as this seemed like um, it was something that wasn't going to happen, I was a paper boy in my own neighborhood, and I was collecting money for um, my my paper, the Daily Pilot, Orange County Daily Pilot, and there was a fellow on my uh, paper route named Jack Sayers, and he was the vice president of lessee relations and industry sales for Disneyland. And I think I kind of knew that, um, but I didn't know he was involved in Walt Disney World, but he had a big Timex uh, clock face 
uh, as a table in his patio, you know, that I'd walk past um, to ring his doorbell, you know, to collect for the paper. And uh, he said, oh, yeah, that used to be on the train station, you know. So I knew he was had something to do with Disneyland. Anyway, um, when I was collecting papers, it was probably in September sometime, um, early September, collecting uh, money uh, from him. I went to the door and he said, um, oh, please put a vacation stop between, you know, September or between yeah September 30th and October 5th, because I'm going to be away uh, you know, for that week. And I said, well, I'll tell my substitute because I'm going to be away too. And he said, well, where are you going? I said, I'm going to Disney World in Florida. And he goes, that's where I'm going. (laughs) So he quickly made arrangements for me to be taken care of when I got, when I arrived out there. And and I'm pretty certain he must have had a conversation with my mom and dad about how I would be taken care of when I got there um, to not worry. And um, that, that, I'll be in good hands. But the thing was that um, at that point, I hadn't agreed or I hadn't made the plan to stay overnight. It was just to go out there and come back. And my mom and dad called my uncle who lived at the time in Atlanta and they agreed to take me, you know, um, I would fly from Orlando that evening to Atlanta and um, spend the weekend with my aunt and uncle. And that all sounded like a good plan. So, um, you know, I had relatives on the other quickly at the other end of this uh, crazy journey. But I love so, it. But yeah. <laughs> you, were, you were ready to go on your own. Like you had no problem. I, yeah, I was. I probably would have backed out if, you know, if I if there wasn't anyone there out there to, you know, right. uh, take care of this. And so um, so I and I think I was just about at that point. You know, like probably when I said, oh, I'm going out there, too. I already in my head told myself I'm not really going out there. (laughs) Uh, So because I don't think, you know, I don't think I knew that he had anything to do with Walt Disney World. You know, I just knew that, oh, he's someone important at Disneyland. And um, and then, you know, kind of uh, ironically, I did not meet with him out there because Jack was. um, his reason for being out there, besides being out there for the opening, was to finish the deal with Eastern Airlines and get it signed for if you had wings. So he was whining and dining the Eastern Airlines people. I found out, you know, 45 years later. <laughs> That's why I didn't see him out there. That's why he wasn't at the dinner that night. Um, so, yeah, I did that. And when I got to the airport on September 30th, it was a red eye flight out out to uh, Orlando so that I'd arrive there first thing in the morning um, on a Delta flight, I suddenly got scared, you know, like, okay, I got to really go through with this. And I had never been on a plane before. And so suddenly, you know, the scale of the idea, you know, hit me. (laughs) And, um, and, and the gods, you know, the gods had been angered slightly by my insolence. And so I, this flight, uh, it was to Atlanta and then uh, switch off from Atlanta to Orlando, but from LA to Atlanta, flying over Texas and in that area, Louisiana, terrible, terrible storm, terrible turbulence, lightning. Um, and, you know, the stewardesses, as they were called back then, were frightened too. I could see it on their faces. I mean, we were really, you know, doing a, a wild Bronco ride through the sky. And I was scared to death. I was certain it was God getting back at me. 
nightmare at 30,000 feet, right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And then, you know, I must have been uh, tired by the time I got, you know, I didn't really sleep. So uh, I got out there, but I don't remember being tired. I just, but, but I think that accounts for some of the, the memory lapse, you know, like I can't remember, I can just barely remember the ride from the airport to Disney World and that it just seemed like it took forever and that it was in the middle of nowhere. It was just trees, 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 trees. And um, I'd still like to find out, you know, there, there's a way to find out who that was, <laughs> but I haven't found it out yet. Uh, who took me there it was in a white, a white Walt Disney World truck. Someone picked me up there. And then when I arrived there, there was a VIP hostess uh, waiting for me. And um, and then the adventure began. <laughs> yeah. And, and not only was the airport, it wasn't even MCO back then. It, you know, this, what the, this, the small little airport that it was oh, different. But, yeah. but as well as Orlando, there certainly wasn't a lot built up. But even Walt Disney World, I think a lot of people, Tom, don't realize that opening day... 1971 is not what we would expect it to be like in 2021, where there is just a mass of people wall to wall. For the most part, I mean, tell me, I want you to share your memories, obviously, but the the park itself was not very crowded that opening day, right? No, no, no. The whole place wasn't crowded. Um, you know, the the um, I was driven right up to the TTC, uh, where I someone took a photo of me and the VIP guide. And we hopped on the monorail and went first to the Polynesian Hotel, where I was to be interrogated by the press <laughs> in a little room that was uh, off the lobby on the first floor. And I don't know how long I was in there, but I was just get me out and get me to the Magic Kingdom. <laughs> so, so they so Disney leveraged this into a PR opportunity for themselves. They did. And I guess it was probably uh, Charlie Ridgeway. I thought it was a fellow named um, Bob Jackson, but in, in my unrelated research years later, I was to find out that I think he was, um, he left the company shortly before Disney world opened, but he was somehow in touch with me. Cause I think I had some letters from him or something. So it must've been Charlie Ridgeway who was taking care of me once I was in there. And I just remember microphones and cameras, and I would go from one spot to another in this in this very you know um, plain room. It was basically, I think, just a backstage break area, and um, and finally got to get out of there <laughs> and got to go back onto the monorail with the VIP hostess. And I think that's where I began to get. Well, actually, the first moment of kind of like wow was walking into the lobby from the second floor. Um, at the Contemporary Hotel, which was such a wow, you know, the the fragrance of the orchids just hit me in the face. And um, it was, you know, such a beautiful, beautiful lobby. Um, and, and unlike anything that you saw, certainly out in, in Disneyland. Right, right. Oh, incidentally, too, when we were at this TTC station at the very beginning, I remember looking off at the Contemporary and it's like, oh, are we, we get to go there right and it's like no it's not finished and i could see the cranes were still up and in fact it's in my photographs the you know the cranes they were still i don't know if they were putting still putting rooms in but they were still working on um, the upper areas of the hotel so finally we get on the monorail to the magic kingdom and the ride over to the magic kingdom was extremely impressive to me because that's i think the first time i really got a true sense of the scale so you know it's one thing to see on a map 
and be told it's you know much bigger than Disneyland and all of that. But then when you see it for yourself and all the berms and as far as the eye can see, no intrusions or anything, um, it was it was extremely impressive. Right, because unlike especially the early days in Disneyland, that that was not very much the case. But just if you can briefly talk about that day, both your the memories of your obviously the obvious comparisons that you were probably making to Disneyland, as well as some of the the, the special privileges that you were afforded as as being because <laughs> you really were sort of a, a guest at that point. Right, and I don't mean right. like a regular day guest; you were like a guest of Disney. Yeah, it was great. Um, well, so when we got to the Magic Kingdom, which was around 11 o'clock, I did notice, like, where are all the people? They had said that, because um, I knew that there were all these rumors about a crush of people. And, um, you know, even even as I was on my way out there from the airport, which must have been seven or eight, uh, around eight o'clock in the morning, there was still, like, chatter about, you know, our our... Is there a backup? Is there, you know, on the freeway, are we getting crushed? There was kind of um, uh, unknown. It was ambiguous as to what as, as to what was going on. Um, but I was told that they were expecting a big crowd. And um, so by the time we got there, it, you know, I couldn't see any crowd at the TTC. And they had said that they had already had the first family in and, uh, the you know, a parade for them. And I kind of felt, oh, shoot, missed it, you know. Um, but we got into the magic kingdom and I was taken over to the city hall and transferred to another, um, caretaker, if you will. So the VIP hostess, um, took me over there and I was met by a woman named, um, Joanne Modica, who was Jack, one of Jack Lindquist's assistants or secretaries. And she would be my escort for the rest of the day. And um, I don't remember now. It was funny. Uh, someone recently asked me, well, did you sign the VIP or did you sign the guest book when you were in there? And I'm like, probably. <laughs> but that's a good, you know, I could have, if I had thought of that a year ago, I could have tracked it down because I tracked down Ed Sato's. I had um, someone at the archives track down. It was easy to do. Uh, Ed, Ed Sato's signature in the preview center guest book uh, from that prior summer. So um, then we were on our way. And I think there may have been another interview or two there at City Hall. And finally, we were on our way. And so my impressions were, um, you know, Main Street in general felt the same to me. Uh, but when we got to the hub, close to the hub, I could see this, you know, the big monoliths of Tomorrowland. And that was really cool looking. And um, so that was the first like, wow, this is different and um, and impressive. You know, I thought it was really neat. I took a picture. I also took a picture of construction that was going on behind what would be the Circle Vision building, which I didn't know until later because I thought, well, that would be too early for it to be if you had wings. You know, so it's probably um, like I remember there was a cast caf cafeteria back there. So maybe it was for that. But I learned later it was for a few at wings. They had already started the box and they hadn't yet signed the deal with Easter, <laughs> apparently. But um, you couldn't go into Tomorrowland. It was closed. None of the shows were ready, uh, except for the Skyway station. So 
later on, you know, I'll talk about that. But uh, so we walked around the hub there, but the first place I wanted to go was Liberty Square because that was one of those elusive things like the Haunted Mansion that appears on a Disneyland map and never opens, <laughs> never comes to be. It's always in the future. And finally, there's a Liberty Square that I get to go into. So we went over to Liberty Square and walked through that and uh, made a beeline for the Haunted Mansion because that was my favorite attraction at Disneyland. And, um, and my first special privilege was because there was no one there, we were the only ones in that foyer and in the stretching room. Um, they let me take flash pictures. But now I only had three roles, so I had to choose very wisely. So I ended up, I think, only taking two or three uh, shots in the Haunted Mansion, one inside the stretching rooms and one of the singing busts. And I think there was another one in there somewhere. Um, it's so funny because <laughs> you're you're living every person's dream to be in the mansion by yourself and taking yeah. pictures. And I think people can't relate to the fact of what do you mean you only had three rolls of film? <laughs> yeah, right. It was a consideration you had to sort of take into account at the time. Yeah, and it very well could have been, you know, two rolls of film, and I bought a third, which would have been GAF, which accounts for, well, actually, it probably was all GAF. I probably bought all the film there, and um, which accounts for why the pictures lost their color over time, and... Um, and, and I'm looking for the negatives, desperately looking for the negatives. There's only one more place that they could be. And I'll know by the end of the year. Um, but uh, I was able to restore most of those photos fairly decently. And I think I posted the best of them on Twitter. So uh, I can't remember exactly the order of things, but I know soon after that, we went into Hall of Presidents. You know, there were the other must-see things were the Hall of Presidents, the Mickey Mouse Review, the Country Bear Jamboree. And so I think we, uh, well, we hit the um, Hall of Presidents and Country Bear Jamboree pretty quickly after that. You know, and and people forget that Hall of Presidents was an e-ticket attraction. Like, it was, yeah. it was a big deal. So it was Country Bear. Yeah. And... Um, and I just, my one note about the Hall of Presidents was, you know, I was impressed and everything, but I thought that film was awfully long at the beginning. <laughs> and I was a little bit worried. I was a little bit worried and I didn't have the appreciation for the craft behind it, you know, that I do now. But um, I was a little bit worried there for a minute that this whole thing's going to be a movie. <laughs> that we're not, you know, and that we'll see a movie of the presidents, but, you know, because I'm trying to figure out, well, you know, does this theater rotate or what, how, when do we see the presidents? Do they come up from that orchestra pit that was out there in front? But then the screens went up, which was really cool. I really liked that. And, um, and so that was the hall of presidents experience. And then we did country bear and I was impressed with that. And all, by the way, I, you know, I can remember the um, fragrances and aromas, if you will, of these locations, you know, that, that hall of presidents smelled like new carpet. And Country Bear Jamboree smelled like the wood and also smelled like um, the brass that had just, you know, the brass railing in there that had just been polished in the morning. There's all the, the smell of newness, if you will, everywhere in the park, um, including, you know, the freshly laid um, asphalt in some areas. In, in uh, on my um, Twitter posts, you'll see in Frontierland and in Liberty Square how they had just slurried the night before. 
There's no footprints or anything. And they didn't finish it in Liberty Square. So there's a, you can see the division of where the new slurry was applied the night before because it's bright red, it's bright brick red, and then the kind of more, you know, um, faded below it next to it. And um, so I was making all these weird little mental notes. Also the smell of mulch um, because they had, you know, there was, it was new planting. So I lived in a new, in a neighborhood that was fairly, also fairly new. And they were also adding, um, you know, uh, uh, little neighborhoods to it. It was actually a cellular greenbelt community, <laughs> uh, which I did. Another thing I didn't find out until much later had a connection to Disney, but, um, I remember that smell of the mulch and then, and the, and the sod. And I'm like, this smells like, you know, this smells like home right here. It was in, it was in Frontierland and parts of the hub where it, it smelled like they had just, you know, put the mulch in bark, you know, and also places where they had just stained the railings, any wood railings or anything. So it was this very um, interesting and odd combination of um, fresh uh, either paint or stain or um, asphalt slurry mulch. Um, and then in the case of the oh, a new carpet, when you went into a, into an interior and then the, the Polynesian hotel, which had, had a little bit of that, but it was mixed in, you know, most powerfully with the orchid mm-hmm. aroma. It's interesting how our olfactory senses are the ones that are most closely tied to memories, right? You're, you're talking about the things Bingo. that you smell even more oh, than yeah. the things that you saw. Or because I'll, I'll get some of those here and there over time. And I go, oh, that, you know, it'll take me back. And, and the poly still pretty much um, smells that way to this day. Mm-hmm. There's still uh, that, that aroma minus the fresh, freshly, um, stained, uh, you know, wood, woodwork. <laughs> Why do I notice those things as a 12 year old? I don't know. Well, I was going to say, and, and I think that's one thing that's intriguing about your story was not just that you're making suggestions that eventually come to pass for attractions, but the, the, the things that you noticed, the things that you were taking in and, and the things that stuck with you so many years later, let's fast forward a little bit because, at some point you say, this is the place that I want to go, that I want to work. And sometimes it's not what you know, but who you know, right? Going, let's go back to your, you must have the best paper route in the world because not only was someone like Jack Sayers and uh, on your paper route, but you had people like Thorough Ravenscraft, um, right. Ravenscroft on your, on your paper route. But you once again tap into Jack when you're looking to go from, kid that's flying across country to visit mm-hmm. Walt Disney World to kid that right. now wants to get a job at Walt Disney World just a couple of years later. I'm sorry, right. Disneyland just a couple of years later. Right. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I just asked him kind of uh, glibly or, you know, almost facetiously if there were any job openings at Disneyland. And um, I think I had perhaps on a previous trip seen some of the balloon sellers who certainly didn't look like they were 18 years old. So I might've mentioned, you know, like, it looks like some of the balloon sellers might be younger. Oh yes, they are. You know, that's Nat Lewis and his operation. I can give him a call and see if he has any openings. And he did. And he did. <laughs> and, um, Oh my God, I can't believe I did that, you know, and this is just going into, you know, I'm in high school and, you know, now I'm working there on weekends. Right, because you weren't uh, actually old enough to be hired by Disney. Like, this was sort of your no. backdoor way into working at right. Disneyland. Right. 
it was a you know it was a sneaky way to get free access into Disneyland essentially. <laughs> um, and you know there so there were a handful of these mom and pop lessees that were still in the park and they hired at earlier ages, you know, some of them 17, some of them 15, 14. And of course the parades, you know, um, had some roles in them that were uh, for young kids, younger kids. So uh, at the very tender age of 14, yeah, I uh, had a weekend job there. And, um, and you know, it, it, it turned out being a good idea, but, you know, I, it was another thing where I'm like going, oh my God, what have I gotten myself into? And I'm not going to quit the job after asking the vice president, you know, one of the key vice presidents of the park, you know, if he'd help me out with that. So, so I, you know, I forged ahead with it and, um, you know, eventually you get little raises and little promotions. So after a year, I'm like, well, you know, I might as well stick with this. Um, and they were, you know, started to build Space Mountain and it was right next to the balloon room. And so that, you know, was interesting <laughs> for me. And so I guess, you know, I, my, I was able to kind of, um, you know, work through it, I guess. I mean, you know, some of the selling balloons was not always a lot of fun, but eventually um, I was moved into the balloon room where you blow up the balloons, you deliver the balloons um, and, and you're with your buddies in there. So you're chatting the whole time. So you can, you know, you can chat and blow up balloons at the same time. And so that was a little bit um, easier, you know, to, to deal with. Uh, although, I mean, I loved being out in the park and everything, but you know, you'd get these crushes of people at the end of the day or after a parade and, and wow, you know, you had you had guest control. You were a one man guest control yeah. person sometimes. But your 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 third party lessee role turns eventually into a role working for the company. You're doing um, foods, and then you're in Tomorrowland working in in operations. Right. And you you're now going from this kid that loved animation and and layout art into into a little bit more of, a, of an expanded. Um, horizons of, of attention where you're now thinking about things like drafting and, and architecture. Tell the story about how you move in the late seventies from the theme parks into Imagineering. It was kind of a, another unexpected um, happenstance, but what happened was um, around 1978, I believe they, you know, began to announce their seriousness about, going ahead with the Epcot project at Walt Disney World and Tokyo Disneyland. There had been, you know, they had been writing about it in the annual reports and it had been a thing that had been kind of brewing. Um, but then it was becoming more and more apparent that they were going to go ahead with these two projects. And at Disneyland, I think they had already had this kind of career planning and placement program where they hire from within, you know, and, um, and so you, you could submit your resume, but but they moved it into a kind of a higher gear when this happened uh, in 1970, I think at the beginning of 1978. And, um, and you could submit your resume and you could submit your portfolio. And now they were kind of aggressively advertising it in the, in the company um, newsletters and, um, you know, that you, you know, we need so many hundred people to do all of this work. And it's not just artists, you know, we need draftsmen, artists, accountants, 
schedulers, planners, project managers, yada, yada, yada. And need is the right and word. I mean, they're, they're basically, they're headhunting they at this point. Yeah. They're headhunting. And so I, out of kind of like, well, what, what have I got to lose? Uh, I looked at it as a bookmark or a placeholder for when I get out of college. Maybe, um, you know, I'll have a little bit of a head start because some people will have reviewed my uh, portfolio. And this portfolio was just the stuff that I had done in high school because this is my first year in college. I'm a freshman now at Cal State um, Fullerton. And I'm still indecisive about what I want to do. I'm taking film classes. I'm taking communications classes. Um, I'm taking illustration classes. Uh, I think by this time I had I had ruled out architecture, but I had taken three years of preliminary pre-architecture, if you will, three years of drafting. You know, and the last year of drafting is a preparation for architecture. And um, so I had a, a lot of work to show from that from those three years. And then um, some illustrations that I had started to do in high school. And um, and so those were really the only things that were in the resume. <laughs> and, you know, so I'm thinking I'm thinking 1982 when I graduate, not, um, you know, 1979. So in 1979 or the end of 78, even it was I mean, it wasn't long before I got a call. And I, I wish I remembered how that all happened, but um, like I was probably called into a supervisor's office. And so I was probably like scared at first, like, why am I being called in? And then I was told that uh, someone wants to talk to me about my um, resume. And it was one of the, they had two headhunters, you know, uh, two Disney employees, you know, they were w with the company, but their jobs were effectively headhunters. Um, and remember that it wasn't even just, Epcot and Tokyo Disneyland, they were also looking for animators and filmmakers to get the um, film program restarted at the studio. So they were looking at everyone. Um, I'm sure they that's how they got Randy Cartwright, because I remember he was a character. I would see him in the um, break areas all the time, and he would always be talking about animation. And I was too shy. I was very introverted back then, so I never really... I may have had made a little small talk with him, but I never really, you know, same with John Lasseter, by the way. I remember having lunch with him one time in the, in between the cafeteria there. And, um, and I, you know, he was saying that how, how he was going to Cal arts and I was just like listening rapid, you know, uh, just, you know, earnestly listening to him. And, uh, and but he said it's very hard to get into and nema, 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 something like that. You, you you have to have you know taken life drawing to get in. He was talking about the pro, you know, the animation program. And um so anyway, that all, all that was happening. <laughs> and they were also, you know, they would have town halls, not just once a year, but it seemed like they'd have them a couple times a year, where in the Lincoln Theater, um, and they would do it like four times a day. And they would take you through the company, what's going on in the company, the rest of the company. And um, so they were showing, you know, all of these really cool sizzle reels for Epcot and Tokyo Disneyland and the studio and all of that. And it was starting to sound more and more intriguing, you know, as an idea to, to work at maybe Imagineering. So the first year in college, I was indecisive. I, I was taking, you know, I was... Uh, uh, you know, taking all of the different things I was interested in thinking I would eventually, you know, at the end of two years, I'll figure it out. 
and I'll transfer to UCLA or USC or wherever I needed to go. But I got this call and uh, I talked to this guy, his name was Stan Soa. And he said, um, we're going to need you, you know, do you build models? I think that was the first thing he asked. Do you build models? And it's like, well, that's something I've been wanting to start to do. And I had met Tony Baxter, you know, like a year or two earlier. And um, he took me through his portfolio and his body of work. And it's like, well, he does models. I, you know, I, uh, I've never done a model before. I didn't realize how easy it was. And um, so I know I don't do models. And he's like, well, we, we really need people in the model shop. And it looks like you could do models. I'm like, <laughs> yes, uh, yes, I can do models. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or somehow he got it in his head that, you know, I'd be good for doing models. And, um, but he said, uh, you know, how about architecture and drafting? I mean, I, you've got a great, uh, you know, some great examples here. Clearly, you know how to do that. And I said, yeah, uh, I'm not interested in necessarily being a draftsman, you know, maybe something in the architectural design department which was a name I just made up at that moment. And, uh, but I, I was thinking, well, I, you know, I wouldn't mind designing, designing buildings, you know, the, the, my, that's what I did. That was some of what was in my portfolio. And there was a, a breadth of um, styles. You know, there was, there was a half timber Bavarian building and a futuristic building and, you know, a, a contemporary building, all these different styles. So clearly that yeah, was something that I could do. Um, anyway, they, Next thing I know, I'm interviewing at WED uh, by George Windrum, who was head of the show set design department. And he's like, yeah, we could use you right away. <laughs> and this was like November of 79. And so I started January. I thought, what the heck, I'll do this. This will probably last a year. I'll do it for work experience. And who knows, you know, maybe I'll, I'll get to do something interesting. It's my, um, my, career description when I started was apprentice draftsman. But, so, but mean, it's gotta, but I had, I'm, I'm going to do some, you know, grunt work for a while. Right. right. Everybody's, you you got yeah. to put the, you got to put in some of those, those. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But you're in the building, quote unquote, you're sort of in the building with the people who were, you know, you're sort of imagineering heroes, right? You're in the same, yes. you're in the same places as a Ward Kimball and a Mark Davis. Yes. And you yes. have this, and, and I love the fact that you knew who these people were, right? Sort of before, you know, now we sort of know them as, as, as legends, but at the time you are, you know, you're a fan of the work of Claude, you know, who Claude Coates is, you're oh, a fan absolutely. of his work and now you're in the building with him. Right. And I'm still shy and introverted. <laughs> um, so uh, Tony introduced me to several of those folks um, and they were all, you know, very nice and everything, but I didn't know how much, you know, I didn't know if I was welcome to just go wandering into their offices and, you know, striking up a conversation. So um, regrettably, I didn't do very much of that. And I wish I had, but wandering around that building. Yeah. I mean, I, and I was also at what I call a friction point physically in the building. I was at, at the crossroads of the architecture, graphics, and model shop on the first floor on a main artery. So I was like, on, my cubicle was at Hollywood and Vine in the building. And in show set design, 
that's the discipline where most of the input and most of the disciplines come together. That's where you look for all of the kind of conflicts. And, you know, if there's an air conditioning duct that's running through the middle of the sets or so, I mean, that's where the engineers are going there. The mechanical engineers, electrical engineers, show designers, art directors, they're all constantly um, in that space. And so, uh, I didn't know who people like Jack Martin Smith um, were or uh, Bob Clatworthy. You know, later I find out that they're big Hollywood art directors who had directed these, you know, huge films. And they were there just, you know, working on some aspect of the energy pavilion or some aspect of the world of motion. And, um, and they're all, you know, Walter Tyler was another one. And um, so in addition to the known, you know, the ones who I knew about, like Mark Davis, Claude Coates, et cetera, there were these other ones that were there specifically for Epcot, who had come from the high ranks of um, film art direction. And that's and that's what you were working on, right? So you're working on things like World of Motion and you're designing, yeah. you know, temples and pagodas and. and yeah, right. And. You know, we'll sort of call it one of the lost scenes, the uh, yeah, hot air balloon yeah. scene that maybe doesn't make it. But you do capture the attention of Claude Coates. You know, he sees some of the work that you're doing and all of a sudden the person who is your your hero, maybe you were too shy to, recognizes the the, the not just the quantity, but the quality of the work that you're doing. I think so. I mean, I um, you know, I often wonder about how how that all happened so quickly and uh, because, you know, I did the grunt work for two weeks <laughs> and then I was, you know, actually designing things, you know, like phone booths and stuff like that uh, for the LAN pavilion and then World of Motion and then the scene for World of Motion. And I think it was Claude who requested it. Maybe Tony said there's a guy, you know, who's pretty good who just started that you might want to have take a look at it. I don't know how it happened. <laughs> um, but it happened. And so, you know, I, I, I made this attempt to um, come up with a scene and, and the, what I had been given were a stack of color Xeroxes of French hot air balloons. That was it. That was my input. Cause I guess the, the original idea was they were going to be projected on the, on a screen. And at some point they realized, well, there's more room in this space than we thought. It's a big, it looks like a big empty room. So we're going to have to put, you know, something in there. So I came up with this idea for the, uh, a, a hot air balloon kind of gone loose, um, heading in the direction of a steeple of a church steeple, you know, where it could get popped. And, you know, so I had the French dude with the wig <laughs> and, um, and a goat or goats in the basket and the and the french guy had his hat and he's like waving you know kind of um not realizing that the balloon's about to hit um the steeple and the goats trying to warn him you know it's like, trying to yeah. <laughs> and um so claude felt it was too complicated or not a, a quick enough read uh, but he liked the buildings that i designed so the building stayed the balloon in that position stayed i think i think they the steeple didn't and uh someone put a pig in it and i don't know if that was claude or mark well, mark mark, had davis, already... mark davis worked on the gags for that yeah. yeah i will someday i'll know the chronology of all this but um i think mark had already finished his um consultant assignment 
on World of Motion. And um, so he wasn't in the mix that I know. But then I heard that they did bring him back again for another small round. And that could have been where the pig was brought in. Let's just or say that been, Mark, was or it could have been, Mark was inspired by your ideas and just took I don't it. know. <laughs> I don't know. Um, and, you know, the, the pencil chicken scratches, as someone referred them to, uh, as, <laughs> um, you know, I, I wish I was a better quick sketch artist. I mean, I could do it if I spent a lot of time, I could actually do a really professional looking sketch, but this is like quick, quick, quick. And I'm not that person yet who cranks stuff out, you know, at high speed. And so they were kind of, you know, um, well, they weren't so bad after I looked at them, you know, over all those years, but I was almost embarrassed in some ways. I mean, like, it's no one ever said, oh, those are really good. You know, that's a really good idea. I never got that. It was just like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, you know. It was like a Walt, like that, that'll work. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, <laughs> I guess so. It, it never happened, you know, in those first couple of years, because I remember putting out a lot of sketches for Journey into Imagination for what the building might look like, and nobody ever responded to any of them. You know, it was like, it was worse than someone saying, that's not a very good sketch, you know, or that's a bad idea. It's just like ignoring it. Just give me completely. Right? <laughs> At least going down the right path. Is this yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, and I did one of them that, you know, wasn't too far away from uh, what they ended up with. It might've inspired Dan Buzet to um, come up with the idea for the two silver halide crystals that he came up with i had it, mine was like basically like a diamond you know with rock work around it as if it was the setting and um and i you know i had that sketch for a long time and now i don't know where it is because some stuff over time when you go from office to office to office to office it seems like you know you lose a folder every time yeah. <laughs> somehow i am um, and there's a lot that i want to get into in about it during to imagination but before sort of moving down to there I want to just get a sense, you know, as we were talking, realizing that you're you're at Imagineering when Epcot is really sort of coming together and Epcot as a whole from the whatever Walt had in his mind to what Imagineering and, and Disney decided sort of to, to make it be was so very different than anything Disney had done before. Can yeah. you give a sense of what the the emotion, the feeling, the thought process was just sort of the overall feeling among the Imagineers of what you were creating for what would eventually be Epcot? I think there was a lot of excitement and pride behind what we were doing because we, you know, in some ways, many ways, we um, felt like we were, you know, helping save the world. And um, so that sounds a little bit lofty, but Explain. The, I think that's really intriguing. Well, the leadership at the time, you know, when they would do these um, presentations and town halls, um, and they were giving a lot of them. And, you know, as you know, they did a presentation, gave a presentation to President Carter, and they would give these presentations to you know um, uh, consulates from around the world. And they basically, you know, what they were saying, if I could summarize, Card Walker had written this really nice piece about you know dreaming it dreamers and doers. And, um, and he said, you know, it's basically, he was saying it's the responsibility of this company after having learned over the decades, how to communicate with people, how to personally treat people, how to um, organize spaces and places and move 
people, both physically and emotionally. And, um, and with all these environmental innovations that they um, had had um, incorporated into Walt Disney World and Disneyland, things like people movers and the energy system that they had um, established and the trash removal system that they had established in Magic Kingdom, you know, the, um, and the, the central energy plants, all of that stuff. Uh, what he was saying was now, you know, we owe it to the world basically to put this in action. And if we don't do it, who else in the world is prepared to do it? There's no other, you know, people don't trust companies. They don't trust the government. They don't trust academia at the time was true. And Disney is about the only name that is trusted out there. So we owe it, you know, to Walt and to the world to do this project. So that was kind of the spirit. Which um, also so I have to imagine puts an enormous amount of pressure on you. Yeah. In individually and collectively as, as Imagineering. Well, yes. Um, you know, uh, I, I tried to get that, you know, as much as I could into the Imagination Pavilion. And I remember, you know, there were many of us who kind of were um, cynical about the world of motion because we felt that there wasn't enough, you know, here's what we're doing for tomorrow. They, there was this vague thing at the end of it, <laughs> you know, that kind of cityscape sort of thing. Right, we're selling uh, but, cars for general motors, they, right? <laughs> yeah, they weren't saying we're getting into electric cars and here's one that you can, you know, see or experience. So we were kind of like, that was kind of like the one that we kind of, you know, snubbed our noses at. But other than that, we, we all felt that we were, um, and by the way, I ended up loving that world of motion, you know, it was a lot of fun. But uh, with the exception of that, I think we all felt that we were doing something that was really important that that would impact young people as they go through it and, you know, might affect their career choices, which it ended up being very true. Um, and so there was, you know, there was a purpose. It was a project with a purpose. And um, it really, you know, it was a lot of fun. I mean, that, it, it, there was a little bit of that at Disneyland Paris too. You know, we we're creating the most beautiful Magic Kingdom park, but Epcot was like, we're really doing something different here. And, you know, we might change the world. And you did. I mean, not to sort of, you know, it's not hyperbole to say that Epcot did right. change the world. And, and um, certainly as somebody who was a kid going to Epcot in 1982, very much profoundly impacted people in meaningful ways that you, maybe you didn't even consider as you're sitting there, you know, at your drafting table. Yeah. Um, and, you know, years later, I would find out, you know, certain people in the professions would say, you know, I was inspired to become an architect by going through Journey into Imagination. That was Chad Oppenheim, the architect down in Miami, who does fantastic um, places and spaces that are all um, sustainable and environmentally friendly. Um, and, you know, filmmakers, gosh, I can't pull them all out of the air right now, but I mean, I've, I've heard several examples, you know, astronauts, some of the younger astronauts who were inspired, you know, to get into science. So I think it did really have an impact in that way. And, um, you know, and, and there are things that you can see in various communities from time to time and, and malls and public spaces where you can see they're definitely borrowing from Epcot Center. 
And I think that Walt would be proud because while we may not know what he may have had in his mind's eye as he was staring up at the ceiling in in those last yeah. days in the hospital, I think exactly what you said is probably what he wanted. He wanted it to right. have an impact on people, um, how it was executed and what it, the pavilions and attractions looks like almost is, is less important than the right. overall impact it has. Oh, absolutely. And I think he really did have a passion for creating a um, an intelligently laid out community that didn't require or depend on the automobile, which could have been one of the reasons that, you know, in that day and age, it didn't go forward because they needed help from places, from companies like General Motors and Ford. Um, but, I, I, you know, I think what's lost on some people is that, you know, they'll say, well, you know, it probably wasn't a practical idea. And, you know, how are you going to like make sure everyone has the latest toaster and microwave? And it's like, it wasn't really about that, you know, it wasn't about even the style of the building, like, oh, the building, you know, that would look out of date now. It was about how you organize a town and how, how you have the, you know, higher density in the center and the lower density outside. And you st still can have a car, but when you drive out of your garage, you drive down into an underground tunnel and get out. The whole city is walkable from one end to the other. And, or you can take a people mover or you can take a monorail for greater distances. And, um, you know, parts of that in pieces have been demonstrated uh, across the nation, but it hasn't been demonstrated as an entire organism that include a monorail and a people mover. At least not uh, yet. At least not, not yet. <laughs> not yet. Yeah. I, I, you know, to me, it seems doable. Forget all of the, you know, oh, you can't control what people are doing if someone naked comes out on the balcony, you know, well, you, you can't do that now at the hotel, right? <laughs> so, uh, you know, I remember one of the things was, well, what if you go, you're on a monorail on your way to the park and you look inside, you know, you go by one of the apartment buildings and someone's smoking weed. That, you know, that was one yeah, of the reasons. It's a consideration, but yeah. Yeah, it's a consideration, <laughs> um, you know, but you, you know, go to Vegas and they, or actually, you know, it's in a small way, Americana here in Glendale, California is a little tiny Epcot where people are living above the um, community, you know, the public space below. And of course, it, you know, it's very small and it doesn't, uh, you know, it doesn't have a monorail or a people mover. It doesn't need one, but showing how you can integrate um, living spaces where people actually own their home and a family-friendly environment that's appealing and is well taken care of. They're not, you know, uh, mutually exclusive. Well, I think many of, of some of the, at the time, fanciful visions of what the future might be, what we were thinking in, in the 50s and early 60s are coming to fruition now. So it might just take a little bit longer to to execute properly on what that vision was. And Tom, one of the things I am most fascinated with, as I think many people are, is the Imagination Pavilion, specifically Journey to Imagination as a whole. And I think this is a fascinating, very deep rabbit hole that I would like to go down with you. Maybe we'll save this for a part two um, so we can give Imagination its due because I know that you have stories that have never been shared before and really I think people have never heard before that I think are going to be very, very interesting. But let's stay a little bit in 
specifically Walt Disney World, because you do you did work in Disneyland. We'll talk about eventually your your work over um, in Paris as well. But in Walt Disney World, um, you also worked on other classic attractions. Um, you worked on Splash Mountain, for example, um, which I think is especially now interesting because of the upcoming changes. Um, talk a little bit about working with Tony on that attraction and specifically where your sort of quote-unquote handprints lie on it. Right. My handprints lie on the one at Disneyland um, where we built the first one. And that all started back in 1984. And and before that, there had been some teams working on a, on a log ride idea um, at the request of Dick Nunes, who had been, you know, pushing WED, WDI at the time, um, to look into doing something that could go head to head with the one at Knott's Berry Farm. Um, but with Epcot and all these other things going on, it was always kind of a low priority. But finally, um, well, so after Epcot opened, there was a big layoff and I was certain I was going to go. I mean, it was I was all getting ready to go back to school. And um, but they kept me. Um, and Tony, wa- Tony was working on new Tomorrowland ideas. So it was like always a thing that was kind of a constant, um, you know, some kind of an update to Tomorrowland. And they had been talking to, talking with uh, George Lucas um, about some kind of a Star Wars involvement. So I was cooking up some plans for that. And that was kind of an on again, off again thing. Uh, then this log ride thing came up and and Tony was being pressured by Dick Nunes um, and and therefore, you know, others at WDI um, to come up with a log ride idea. So and he was screaming, I submitted this to you people 25 <laughs> years ago. I might have done that or I might have forgotten by then. It's funny, you know, you get so busy sometimes that you don't have time to look back. Um, <laughs> now I have plenty of time to look back and that's all I'm doing. Uh, and I'm having fun doing it. But um, so I what I can't remember exactly is if at that point in time, it was he had already determined he wanted it to be based on Song of the South. But I remember it was shortly thereafter, uh, if not at the very beginning, it was shortly thereafter. And we talked about it because you know, we were looking at different themes and I think we may have like for briefly, just, you know, for the sake of doing it, looked at the rescuers, which was, you know, took place in the bayou and, um, and it seemed like, you know, it could be kind of fun with an Evan rude, you know, kind of a theme or something, but there just wasn't enough in the film, you know, and, and particularly music. And both Tony and I are big believers in the power of music driving the story and driving the experience. And so Song of the South was the one that kept coming back because locationally, we knew that this was going to go somewhere on the west side. And the two big, you know, um, spots where it looked like it could fit were between the Pirates of the Caribbean and the Haunted Mansion behind it, uh, or just a little bit um, north of that. Uh, north of where, just a tad north of where Splash Mountain would have gone. We weren't looking at what was was a skinny berm at the time where it ended up going. Um, and so I was tasked with how to locate it, how to site it, and then lay it out. So I was focused on that um, initially uh, as the story was kind of being um, bantered about. 
and uh, came up and there was there were some um, uh, kind of requirements that were thrown in, which was it's got to be longer than the one at Knott's Berry Farm. It's got to be more thrilling than the one at Knott's Berry Farm. It's got to have a higher drop than the one uh, at Knott's Berry Farm and more drops because Knott's had two. So that meant we had to do three. <laughs> um, and so those were those were kind of my metrics um, that they gave me. And I, I was also helping kind of figure out, you know, what would make sense um, song wise and story wise. And so I remember thinking like dropping into how do you do would be kind of a neat, you know, sort of a thing. Um, I didn't come up with most of the show scenes eventually, but I think I plotted out kind of, you know, just a basic how do you do, you know, um, and uh, laughing place uh, moment. And, uh, and so I was doing these layouts. It was behind, we were looking at the space between Pirates and Mansion behind the train station. It would have had a um, staircase, a grand staircase going up to it. And you could take an elevator if you were disabled. And um, it was kind of like a big, you know, kind of New Orleans style um, uh, building up there that would entice you uh, to go up there. And, um, and then we would have had to bridge over some infrastructure. So this was the thing that didn't work. There's um, sub electrical substations and uh, water filtration and uh, cooling units back there. So uh, we would have had to either relocate those, which would have cost a lot of money or platform over them. And it started to open up some things like, well, now there's some visual intrusions that you can see from while you're up there. And um, it was all, you know, you could design all of that away, but it was just starting to cost too much. And Tony didn't want to put it in, fan there were some people were suggesting to put it in fantasy land in that meadow um, next to small world. And he really had his heart set on um, putting it in in Frontierland, New Orleans Square. And so, you know, we looked at a couple more sites, but they all had problems. And Tony was ready to give up on it. As I recall, he was very discouraged when we got an estimate of that first location. And um, so then I was looking at a, an aerial photo, you know, that's a good thing to do from time to time because, uh, well, there's a story I won't even get into about the creation of Disneyland. And when someone was looking at an aerial photo of Anaheim, how they, finally came up with the final final location for Disneyland and it was because they saw something in an aerial photo that they weren't seeing on the ground um that's for another time but I I saw this little skinny piece of berm north of the Haunted Mansion that separated the Haunted Mansion area from Bear Country at the time and there was just a, the only thing, you know, there kind of in the way was bathrooms. You know, there was a, a large bathroom building um, snuggled, snuggled up along that berm. And I just started to take my um, uh, toolkit, you know, of, of uh, log ride parts that I had developed, the metrics, you know, the, the run out, the lifts, the drops, the turns and all of that. And I wanted to see if I could lay it out on that berm. Cause like, well, maybe if it's out behind Haunted Mansion, you know, it's Southern Georgia clay, you know, and then you've got New Orleans. And so I don't, you know, if, if we get those cypress trees tall enough, it won't be too much of an intrusion on the Haunted Mansion. And I remember Tony coming by at one point going, oh, good luck. 
And uh, I somehow figured out a way to weave it under, over, you know, there's railroad tracks and the Haunted Mansion show building and a Haunted Mansion basement building in the, within the park on the train tracks, all these things that it had to just narrowly miss. And somehow I got it to all fit and, um, and drop into the river and even create an opening for the trains to look into the last scene, which we didn't know yet what we were we didn't know yet we were going to put a big finale in there that was tony's great idea uh but it was looking out into the area so you could i think you could see the um, logs dropping and everything and um and it worked it fit you know and we had some engineers look at it and yeah it looks like you know there's a little bit of infrastructure impact but not like in the other location that you had so we were kind of off and running um this is about the time that michael eisner is about to join and Ron is on his way out. And uh, Bruce Gordon and I took a trip out to Florida to Bush Gardens in Tampa because that log ride. Oh, so we were talking to Aero Development at the time because they had built the one at Knott's Berry. They had invented it, basically. They invented the log ride. And they had built um, the first one at Astro World or whatever it was called in Texas. And they had built one at Knott's Berry Farm and a couple of others. And so they had, you know, they had their toolkit for a log ride was what they gave me. So that's what I was working to. And so they had suggested we go out to see this one at Bush Gardens that had a dip drop on it where it drops and then comes back up. And we went out there just to do that. And I loved it. And I don't know why Bruce didn't because Bruce always likes more and more and, you know, always want, likes it at 11 on the dial but his recommendation was not to do it. And my recommendation was to do it because you could put it in the laughing place and it could be kind of funny. And um, Tony went with do it. So I did um, what was kind of a final layout for estimating and, you know, a, a preliminary or concept schematic um, level drawing of it and, and to make sure it was accurate they sent uh so arrow was was a um was one of going to be one of several bidders they didn't want to promise arrow the job so they brought in another person who had worked with arrow but had formed his own company named his name was don new farmer and he was the water hydraulic engineer for pirates of the caribbean who engineered pirates of the caribbean years earlier and what and basically invented the first log ride, had laid out the one at Knott's Berry Farm. So I had him side by side with me. It's kind of a story that I've heard um, Bob Gurr tell about when he had to design the Matterhorn and he didn't know trigonometry. Um, because what I didn't know was that there were all sorts of dynamics that I wasn't taking into consideration with my toolkit. Um, and so this guy, Don, Far Don New Farmer, uh, set me straight right away and basically um, did the important calculations that were needed for each individual drop. And also, you know, there's a weird thing with a gravity-based water ride versus pirates or small world, which are being pushed by jets. But a log flume is gravity, is water pulling the gravity in the log down. So there's some different dynamics. And so I had a lot of scenes that were spec'd out at, um, you're moving through them at four to five feet per second. And he said, that won't work. You, it won't, water won't flow at four to five feet per second for a sustained amount of time. You have to either um, target it at two to three 
or um, seven and over. <laughs> like well, that's like a weird voodoo thing, but you know. So I incorporated all those calculations in, and I think we worked side by side for a couple of weeks, and I came up with the final final track plan. Um, that was eventually I left the project to work. Uh, I was sent down to Disneyland to work on a whole bunch of different things. So this was my time to uh, do the learning at the park. So I just finished up the preliminary ride layout and, and had laid out, helped lay out the scenes and, you know, had determined where some of the scenes would go. And that's what they ended up using. Um, Cause I saw, just saw the second uh, pass at the layout uh, yesterday at the Van Eaton auction. <laughs> I'm like, God, that looks like something that looks really familiar. And I looked at it and go, well, it's 19, you know, 86. So it's right after I uh, finished up on it. And um or maybe sometime after I finished up on it, but it was essentially the same track layout. They took out one little corner of it, um, you know, in a budget uh, reduction um, moment, but it was still, you know, it still ended up being a nice 11 minute, 11 or 12 minute attraction with three drops in it. And, you know, very highly, highly satisfying by the time they were building it and, um, and it opened, I was living in Paris. So I was never part of the, you know, the celebrations or the, um, opening for that. So I saw it, you know, not until I came back from Paris. Well, I think it's an interesting time to talk about splash mountain, um, for a number of reasons. Um, let's go back for a second. First, before we go forward, you know, you talked about how, well, you alluded to earlier the importance of of music in the attractions and, and even things right. like Pirates and Haunted Mansion and, and It's a Small World and how the idea, you know, we sort of know the story about the, the idea for what was originally supposed to be the Zippity River Run. Um, and yeah, how, right. And how yeah. Michael Eisner's like, no. I remember that need, name. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. We need to theme it after Splash. And and eventually right. eventually there was a, a reconciliation of incorporating Splash into the name, but not necessarily the Tom Hanks, yeah. Daryl Hannah movie right. into right. Um, the theme. And now, you know, we're as we're, we're looking to sort of the next phase of the iteration of the attraction we were we have to sort of reconcile our sense of nostalgia with the sense of change but mm-hmm. i think once again music is going to play an important part in the decision to retheme because yeah. the music from princess and the frog is so strong and so yeah. powerful and i think lends itself to such a great storytelling vehicle in an attraction yeah. like this I actually agree. I mean, I think um, I think the music is great. The characters are great. The style, the color, everything lends itself perfectly to a you know flume ride that takes place you know in the South near New Orleans, and um, I'm all for it personally. I mean, if we had that property back then, we certainly would have done it. If Rescuers had had better music, we may or probably would have done that because the big issue with Song of the South was, has anyone seen the movie? They're very familiar with the music and music, you know, had been used um, everywhere, you know, on commercials, advertisements throughout the park and parades. And um, so there wasn't the issue with it then that there is now. And, you know, I respect people's, you have to respect people's opinions and feelings about about that now whether the feelings are are sincere or not i don't know but it certainly doesn't hurt to update it and and uh, tie it into a film that more people have seen and have more um connection with the characters 
I, I agree. And as somebody who loves the film, who loves the setting of the film and certainly the music, um, I, I'm looking forward to you know what is to come next for it. Tom, I, there is so much that, like I told you, there's so much that I want to chat with you about, including Rock and Roller Coaster and Disney Quest and oh, yeah. Cars Land and Hong Kong. A lot to talk about in Hong Kong and certainly um, Journey into Imagination. I, I would love, if that's okay, if we could, um, if I could invite you back again and we sure. could talk more about yeah. some of the amazing work that you've done um, that is continuing to entertain and delight guests, myself included. Great. Yeah. Happy to do it. Let's do it after the first of the year. Sounds good. In the meantime, if people want to follow you on social, um, I love so much of what you share. Uh, can you tell people where is the best for them to follow you? Well, I, I'm mostly on Twitter. Tom K. Morris. Um, I guess that's all it is, right? At Tom K. Morris. <laughs> Same with uh, Instagram. And, you know, I, I'm not a heavy, heavy tweeter. Sometimes I'll have a little flurry of tweets, but my um, my MO for tweets is usually when I'm on hold on the phone or waiting in line for something, you know? Uh, <laughs> and so I have a very informal um, system, if you will, and, you know, sometimes I go days before I tweet and other times I just tweet something silly that I happen to, you know, see in my photo stream. So there's no rhyme or reason to it, but I try to make everything interesting and not something that you've seen before. You are a great example of of quality, not quantity. You might not tweet for a while, <laughs> but every now and then it's important you turn on notifications because you will share something that a lot of us who are Disney enthusiasts, nerds, whatever you want to call us, um, have often yeah. never seen before. And I'm really holding back, you know, because I'm doing, I'm working on a book project that will probably come to fruition. And if it doesn't, it's still incredible, incredible research, but I'm not, you know, um, uh, privy to sharing most of that. Sometimes there's a little piece that I can share, uh, but I've got, oh my goodness, have I got some really good, you know, findings they, everything it's all good news it's all good stuff you know there's nothing that's like oh it's all um just you know adds to the story that we thought we at this point we kind of think we've seen everything we've heard everything but no there's so much more to the story disney is the gift that keeps on giving and that's and at first of all, i first i totally dig the tease and and that's one of the things that I love and, and, you know, again, we didn't even sort of talk, you know, you've always been a researcher, even on things that you weren't necessarily working on. We could spend days probably just talking about the Haunted Mansion. Right. Um, right. Even though that wasn't necessarily, quote, your project. So, right. Um, Tom, thank you so very much for sharing your story and so many of the great stories from the Disney parks. Uh, I sincerely appreciate you. And as somebody who, again, continues to enjoy the, the, the fruits of your work. Uh, I, I really do appreciate it. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me on, and I look forward to more. It's time for our Walt Disney World Trivia Question of the Week, where I invite you to test your knowledge of Walt Disney World's history or see how well you pay attention to the details and what you see, hear, or remember. If you think you know the answer, you can enter for a chance to win a Disney prize package. And this week's trivia contest is once again brought to you by you. 
And what I mean by that is that as part of the WW Radio Nation, you literally help bring every episode of WW Radio to life, every live broadcast from the parks, all the contests and the giveaways. They're all thanks to, by, for, and because of you. You can find out how you can help the show for as little as a dollar per month and get cool exclusive rewards every month, including scavenger hunts, trivia quests, group video calls. We have a private Facebook group, shirts, stickers, monthly care packages, early access and discounts to special events, and much more. You can find out more and join the nation by going to www.radio.com support. Now, before we get to this week's question, we're going to go back, review last week's, and select our winner. So last week we went to Magic Kingdom and back in time a little bit because I told you that model and actress Tyra Banks, who's currently host of Dancing with the Stars, was once a star herself in what Walt Disney World attraction? First, thanks to the hundreds of you who entered, got this one correct or were at least very creative in your answers because the correct answer is the extraterrestrial alien encounter. Now, if you remember that attraction, once you got into the Tomorrowland Interplanetary Convention Center, there was a welcome video from XS Tech, the corporation showing some of their latest technologies. We saw a little bit from Chairman Clench saying if something couldn't be done with XS, it shouldn't be done at all. And if you paid close attention, you notice that the alien XS Tech representative featured in that video was Tyra Banks, although her voice was actually dubbed over. You can learn more in our very deep dive into our DSI Disney scene investigation of extraterrestrial alien encounter back on show 363. And last week's winner, randomly selected, is Lana Hart. So, Lana, congratulations. I will get your prize package out to you right away. If you played last week and didn't win, that's okay, because here's your next chance to enter in this week's Walt Disney World Trivia Challenge. So it is somehow Christmas in just a couple of days, and I love, love, love Muppet Christmas Carol, which you can obviously find on Disney+. Plus. And as I was watching it for the 73rd time, like the lamp, not the rat, I started thinking about the Muppets in Walt Disney World. And if you actually go back to show 251, I did an entire episode about the Muppets in Walt Disney World. I look back. I look forward, the marriage of Disney and the Muppets, the TV specials, the shows, the attractions, what could have been, and the future of the Muppets in the Disney parks. And if you go back and listen, it might actually help you with this week's trivia challenge, because tell me, in Muppet Vision 3D at Disney's Hollywood Studios, who gives the safety narration in the pre-show to the attraction? You have until Sunday, December 26th, at 11.59 p.m. Eastern to go to www.radio.com, click on this week's podcast. This week, once again, you're going to play for the WW Radio pin and keychain, which you can only get as contest prizes. I'm also going to throw in a bonus surprise prize. And because it's Christmas, I'm also going to throw in an extra special WW Radio Christmas mystery package. So good luck, Merry Christmas, and have fun. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thank you so much for taking the time to tune in this and every week. Please come be part of the community and conversation and talk about not just this week's show, but anything in the Disney, Marvel, and Star Wars universe by joining the WW Radio Clubhouse group on Facebook at www.radio.com slash clubhouse. 
It's fun, it's free, it's family-friendly, and very, very welcoming. You can also connect with me on social. I am at Lou Mangiello on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. You can also email me, lou at www.radio.com if you have any questions you'd like me to answer on the show, or call the voicemail. Be heard on the air at 407-900-9391. That's 407-900-WW1 with a question, a comment, or just a hello from the parks. Please join me this and every Wednesday night at 7.30 p.m. Eastern for WW Radio Live. It's our live weekly video broadcast and chat often as we walk and talk from the parks or from the home studio where we talk about this week's podcast, what's new in the Disney, Marvel, and Star Wars universes. I share my top five live, our Disney Plus Pick of the Week, contests, questions, anything you want to chat about. Be sure to turn on notifications on both the WW Radio page and the WW Radio Clubhouse group on Facebook so you don't miss a thing as I often go live also from the parks in addition to Wednesday nights as well. Of course, as much as I love connecting and talking with you online, nothing beats a handshake and a hug. If you go to www.radio.com slash events, you can find out about upcoming meets of the month, special events, including our next meet of the month, which will be in January during Marathon Weekend. Group events, including group cruises like our Marvel Day at Sea in February, our inaugural cruise on the Disney Wish in June, our very merry time group cruise on the Wish in December, and our Disney Fantasy 8-Night Overnight in Bermuda in April 2023. I'm also planning a number of different special events, both in Walt Disney World and other locations as well. Again, be sure to check out the events page at www.radio.com events. Huge thanks to some of the new and longtime members of the WW Radio Nation family. Once again, I am sincerely grateful for your love and support and friendship, and I love being able to give back to you each and every month. I want to thank some new and longtime members, including Jennifer Hoffman, Elvin Torres, Eric Siegel, Tom Nolan, Katie Hayes, and Erica Daniels. Again, to find out how you can, you can be part of the Nation family, go to www.radio.com support. Speaking of support, none of this would be possible without the support of our friends over at MEI and Mouse Fan Travel. It is who I have not only used for more than 15 years, but it's who I trust, which is why I recommend them so highly to you. Whether you're going to any Disney destination or anywhere on the planet, it's not just about getting the best prices and discounts. It's really that level of attention and service that they give to each and every one of their clients. You can learn more and get a free no-obligation quote by visiting mousefantravel.com. And as always, my friend, and you are my friend, whether we have met yet or not, all I ask is that if you like the show, please, please, please help spread the word. How? By sharing a link to this or your favorite episode on social, whether it be your favorite Facebook group, your Instagram or Twitter. Tag me at Lou Mangiello so I see it. Inviting a friend to listen and come be part of the community. And if you can, take just a few seconds to rate and review the show over an Apple podcast. Even if you listen on a different podcast player, that's okay. If you go to Apple Podcasts, search for WW Radio, leave a rating and review. It is incredibly helpful. Takes just a couple of seconds. I want to thank some recent reviewers like Red Frag, who says... It's great Disney information from somebody who became a friend. I love the podcast. Lou covers all different aspects of Disney, from the parks to movies and cruises and adventures and, of course, food. Listening to Lou is like listening to a friend talk. And if you follow him on social, he does, in fact, quickly become a friend. Very grateful for the in-depth touch of Disney, especially as I live outside the U.S. and can't get to the parks and cruises often enough. Red Frag, thank you. And to you, thank you so very much for taking the time to listen to the show for being part of the community and for the gift that you give me which is of your time and your friendship 
both of which mean more to me than you know. And in this season of giving and love and friendship, I want you to know just how much it means. And I hope that the show is something that you continue to enjoy this and every week. And with Christmas coming just a few days away, that's all I'd ask for for Christmas is to know that the show makes you happy and puts a smile on your face and maybe teaches you something, even more importantly, maybe even inspires you a little bit to choose the good. And I mean to, to find the good in everything and everyone that you encounter. And if you pay that forward, right, if, you, if you spread positivity, positivity will spread. So thank you, thank you, thank you again. There is so much to be thankful for, and I am so thankful to and for you. I hope whatever it is that you celebrate during this time of year, that you are surrounded by those that you love and those that love you in return. And for whatever it's worth, I love you. I appreciate you. And I thank you so, so very much. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Kwanzaa. Happy Festivus. Happy December. Whatever it is that you celebrate, I hope that it is your best ever. So until next time, see ya. Hey, Lou and WDW Radio Nation. Um, this is Danny, and I'm currently driving uh, very early to a wedding listening to um, the episode about some of the best places. I think it's the top 10, probably turned into like top 50 places to experience Disney at night. And I just find myself smiling so much because um, I just got back, well, it's about a month ago now, um, from a trip to Disney World. And I keep thinking about one of my favorite moments of our trip was the first night I had made a reservation for Ogus Cantina. The only option for the first day was 9.30 at night, which I knew we were going to rope drop. Um, my pa- my family knew we were going to rope drop, and so I wasn't too confident we'd we'd keep our 9:30 reservation or or be excited about it at the end of the day. But man, we that seriously was the best thing. And I remember in this episode you mentioned like make a a dining reservation at night, um, and you really have that park to yourself as you're leaving, and that couldn't be more true. Like there was. Nothing cooler than being on that tube, walking through Galaxy's Edge at 10 p.m. at night with literally no one there except for a cast member um, every 20, 30 feet, if that, and hearing the sounds of uh, the, like, quote-unquote, aircraft flying over and seeing all the details of such an incredible land. Um, and then once you leave Galaxy's Edge and you're walking Sunset Boulevard, uh, just leaving the parks, and now at the 50th anniversary, all the statues, my family and I were literally skipping from statue to statue so we could see each one of them. And there was no one there, and we really just got to take in everything around us, Um and as a family growing up, um, we mostly went to Disneyland. We would just go, go, go the whole trip. We never really slowed down to take in those moments. So that was something I intentionally challenged us to do for this trip to Disney World was to take in those simple moments. And I, I think your episode about the, the nighttime 
perks and just everything that the nighttime brings out at Disney World couldn't have been more true because hands down my favorite moment of that trip was just being able to take in the park at night. Um, so thank you for this up. Hi, everybody. It's Elizabeth from Massachusetts. Once again, it's been way too long since I've called in. Um, yeah, time just keeps getting faster, it feels like. But I hope everyone had a very thankful Thanksgiving. Um, I just finished listening to the most recent episode um, with Vault's connection with history in America, which I'm a uh, social studies teacher, so absolutely loved the episode. Uh, I love hearing all those connections, and I'm super excited for this Smithsonian Disney overlay situation that we're going to be getting um, 2023, I think you just said. Also, I am laughing very hard at Mary from Georgia's story about the uh, canoe tipping over. Um, and I'm glad she's okay and her family was too, but I kind of like want that to happen to me in a weird way. Like the, the idea of getting to go underneath the utilidors and being able to put on, um, some cast member uniforms seems kind of like something I wouldn't mind. Um, so I love that story. I thought it was hilarious. Um, yeah, but the past episodes have been awesome as always. I hope everyone's doing well. Holidays are upon us. Um, I hope everyone stays merry, stays magical, and has an awesome day. See you guys soon. Hello, Lou Montello. It's Darlene Nagy, formerly of West Seneca, New York. And I am calling in to say that we are nine days away from Christmas and another uh, two weeks away from the new year, which you have a few things coming up in the new year. We have the WDW Radio Marvel Cruise in 50 days. And then you have the ABD WDW Radio Italy trip, which is 81 days away. And then the WDW Radio Disney Wish Cruise in June, which is 185 days away. There are so many things coming up. It's amazing. So I hope you all have a wonderful, magical day. Stay safe and move forward, as Lou always says. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Love and hugs.